0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Varying Viewpoints podcast series sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity and Justice at Rutgers University. I'm your host, Mary Beth Gassman, and uh, I am a professor at Rutgers University. And I also have the pleasure of serving as the executive director for the Samuel DeWitt Proctor. Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice. And I'm here with our wonderful invited guests today, uh, Glenis Daniels, who's an ADA consultant, and Catherine Aquino, who is an assistant professor at St. John's University. Welcome, my friends. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, our podcast today is going to discuss the results of two recent surveys that were completed on long COVID and COVID-related mental health challenges Related to offices that serve students with disabilities at higher education institutions, including some of the nation's minority serving institutions. So, I'm going to get started by asking a few questions and we'll just really get into a great discussion. And this is such an important topic. And I don't, um, I think I may have shared with um, one of you at least that I have a, a good friend who is suffering from long COVID. And so, this issue has just become very, very personal um, to me, you know, something that I really care about, so I'm very excited to um, talk about it and get more information out in the public about um, the research that you all have been doing, which is so important. So I'll start off uh, with a question, and Catherine, I'm going to ask you the question first, and that is, um, what was the reasoning behind this research for each of the studies? And I'm curious about why there was a focus on minority-serving institutions. For one of the studies, um, you know, uh, institutions that sometimes are often forgot. So. Um, I, um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Absolutely. So so this research work, this long COVID research work, came out of some earlier research work that I completed with Dr. Sally Scott. So she is the director of research at the Association on Higher Education and Disability. And this initial collaboration really focused on the experiences of disability resource professionals during the pandemic, how they supported students, um, specifically students with disabilities, how institutions were supporting their administrative efforts. Um, And as that wrapped up, as, as the, the pandemic really progressed, there, there was a new conversation to be had. Um, so Jane Jarrow, she is the president of Disability Access Information and Support. She began uh, reaching out to colleagues, uh, really discussing about the importance of long COVID and, and really its potential impact on higher education. Jane formed this wonderful long COVID task force where we uh, came together. Uh, initially, I think it was about 32 of us and developed uh, a workbook essentially to support disability resource professionals as they were now seeing students um, requesting accommodations, having questions related to long COVID. As the the task force uh continued on with our efforts. We understood that we were becoming a, a larger group and that subcommittees really had to form, uh, a research subcommittee formed and we knew we had to get to get a baseline. What was going on in higher education as it relates to long COVID? Uh, are students being supported? Do administrators know about the the related conditions and and how best to 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 not only work with them for accommodations, but work with faculty to begin conversations related to this, this long COVID term that's still very new and emerging. Um, I will say this, uh, this was our initial data collection, was for all institutions of higher education throughout the United States. And while our survey did not focus specifically on minority serving institutions, we did have a lot of really great uh, institutional characteristic questions. So we were able to disaggregate and and found that a a nice portion of our, our survey sample actually came from MSIs.
0: Oh, that's great! That's great. Thank you, Glennis. Did you have anything you wanted to um, contribute?
2: Yes. Um, as as basically Catherine uh, said earlier, this came out of the the Long COVID Task Force. Um, Jane Jarrow contacted me and wanted to know what my thoughts were on um, HBCUs uh, specifically. As we were getting into more, or trying to get more resources on on the long COVID task force workbook. And um, as we were thinking about it and looking through the data, so we started doing a data um, a data search and we started looking at that and we realized that a lot of emphasis was ju- done in general. And what we wanted to do was really and truly to focus on MSIs um, HBCUs and MSIs, uh, specifically, so that we were getting data from them and on them. So, uh, so that the, while we have general information, we can also pull together the more in-depth information that we were going to get directly from these institutions. So that is where we started out. And so we put together a group. Uh, Dr. Janet Medina, that is on the, on, on, on here right now, uh, Dr. Lisandra uh, De Jesus from CSN, College of Southern Nevada, Dr. Daniel Alvarado and uh, Candice um, Philander. So we started working together to put together this information so that we can actually provide um, a more robust information to the, the original um, data collection that was being done.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm just I'm just so glad that you all have been doing this work. I think it's so important. So um, can you kind of take us a little bit further, either one of you, whoever would like to respond, to describe a bit about the development of these research studies and, you know, how many participants were included in the studies? Um, when did you collect the data um, for these projects? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So we just wrapped our initial data collection, um, and that
1: initial data collection occurred right before the the fall 2022 semester, so specifically July and August of 2022. Uh, This survey, it was developed by our research subcommittee of the Long COVID Task Force, and it was disseminated primarily through the AHEAD, so the Association for Higher Education and Disability Listserv, um, in addition to to several other listservs related. Um, The questions that we wanted to focus, so we we really outlined and piloted the instrument based on the workbook itself, Uh, so not only gauging the number of students coming into Disability Resource Offices, but potential strategies and recommendations coming out of various institutions throughout the United States. Our initial data collection yielded 140 disability resource professionals throughout the United States. And what was frustrating, I would say, during the collection and and as we were engaging with the community, so many disability resource professionals are saying, well, We're not getting any long COVID cases. And I would always say back, but still complete the survey because that zero is still very powerful in this baseline. Um, So we know that this is something that we have to continue on and and have several iterations of the survey because we do have to track trends over time. Out of the 140, I should mention, approximately 21% noted that they work at MSIs, so specifically 30 of the 100 participants work at MSIs currently.
2: So for us, when we started looking at the the MSIs, which was interesting because we realized that MSIs um, vary in terms of the types of MSIs that you you have and the the designation of MSIs. So we started looking at the category of of those and look at those who were eligible and who were already identified as as, uh, category five or six, um, according to Department of Education. So, uh, so we started with the research, developing the research question to really look at the impact on the staff um, at that point because we were looking for looking at this study as two parts: one, a preliminary survey, and then from the information from there to actually expand it to more of the in-depth on um, uh, another uh, survey. So, with that, we were looking at. The impact on the staff, the impact on what they were seeing on the ground, um, they, how did they pivot to an online environment? What were some of the issues that they were dealing with? And, you know, from staffing to budgeting, how, how were they dealing with all, all of that? And were they seeing an increasing number of students coming in with uh, long COVID or long COVID COVID? Um, or mental health issues due to the, the impact of COVID. So that was where we kind of pivot from what Catherine Group was doing to, to focus mainly on that on that with the, the MSI. So again, to pull all of the pieces together to share that information. And like Catherine said, one of the issues that we, you're having is that uh, COVID is still very, the impact of long COVID is still very new. So you were carrying some of that information. But as we, we followed up with a, from the survey with, a, with basically um, interviews, and that was able to give us some more information from the, inter, the individual interviews that we had. We started out with um, about 179 uh, institutions, that we looked at, and we wanted to make sure that it was going to be across representation geographically and across MSI categories also. In addition to that, we were able to pull um, some institutions from the Caribbean uh, as well. Six joined the joined the group, so we had a total of about fifty uh, individuals responding back to the survey, and, and that was very good. Again, the the interview question was very, very revealing to us. After the initial survey was done um, in October, we followed up in November with the interviewing session sections.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And I'm glad you talked about pivoting, because I just think for anybody who is interested in doing research and is listening, sometimes we get into this idea that, you know, everything has to sort of be um, perfect and roll out exactly the way we envisioned. And sometimes you do just have to kind of like pivot, especially when you're in the midst of something that is as um, crazy as COVID is. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, one other thing that, uh, another thing I wanted to ask about is, you know, really interested in your key findings regarding, um, for example, the impact on staff and offices that serve students with disabilities. What kinds of things uh, did you find in the, in the um, results?
1: So I think I should uh, first mention how I'll organize (laughs) this response to you. First, I'll do some overarching findings, and then I'll drill down a bit to um, the responses from uh, disability resource professionals at MSIs. Uh, So as I previously mentioned, this data collection occurred in July and August of 2022, but the questions were specific to the experiences during the 21-22 academic year. And during that year, overarching again, uh, approximately like nine, uh, I would say 39 students per institution were reaching out to their disability resource, uh, resource offices related to long COVID questions, long COVID requests. Um, and approximately 27% of the disability resource professionals uh, surveyed reported that there were no students currently reaching out during that 21-22 year. Of the students who were reaching out, about 31% had pre existing conditions that were already documented previously in that disability resource office, which is interesting because perhaps that allowed them to feel more comfortable. They knew contacts within this office. Perhaps they knew the questions, they knew the structure. So that's something to to kind of flag. Um, Of those who, um, of the disability resource professional surveyed, they were saying that students, about 68%, were coming in requesting accommodations related to long COVID diagnoses uh, dealing with mental fog. Um, about 59% of students were coming in uh, noting difficulty concentrating as it relates to their long COVID diagnosis. And about 44% of the students coming in, um, 44, I should say, 44% of the, the survey responses noted that in their institution, students were coming in related to long COVID diagnoses associated with problems remembering. Uh, So there was really a a fantastic range of of conditions related to this long COVID diagnosis. We organized it into about five categories and and several examples under it, but we were seeing across the board issues with cognition, emotion and behavioral issues, sleep, somatic, and substance intake issues. Um, Now, I will say this as well. We were curious about how institutions were supporting this. This is new. This is emerging. Even when you go on the CDC versus state organization, Sometimes we say long-haul COVID. Sometimes we say long-term COVID. Terms are even changing and, and varying depending on. This is new. This is emerging. So how institutions are responding so early on is one interesting, but from our findings a bit concerning. Um, So uh, about 47% of the uh, the sample um, indicated that their institutions had no communication related to long COVID within the campus community. And over two thirds, so uh, about 68% of the disability resource professionals shared that faculty had not even reached out to the office on guidance on how to best support student long COVID cases. Um, And during that 21-22 academic year, about 79% of the surveyed uh, disability resource professionals' offices had yet to make any formal resource requests to their institution leadership. So it's this kind of back and forth complication. It's our offices um, getting the appropriate resources, our faculty, our administrators reaching out, or better yet are these offices providing the guidance to the institutions as well so that it's a complicated time right now and something that we still need to to research and and explore Uh, now specifically to MSIs um, about approximately 35 students per institution were reaching out and that's a bit lower than the 39 on average overall and of the students receiving long COVID accommodations within MSIs in, in, in this subgroup, about 39% already had pre-existing conditions, which is a bit higher than the, the full group noted at 31%. Uh, for the Disability Resource Professionals at MSIs, they reported that the majority of the symptoms for students long COVID conditions were related to mental fog, similar to the overarching group, same with problem, problems concentrating, but also 53% for fatigue. So, so similarities with the overarching group, but, but some differences as well. And about one-third, so 33%, indicated that their institutions had no communication on long COVID. Um, and over three-quarters, so about 77% of the disability resource professionals shared that faculty had not yet reached out. So whether you were drilling down to a specific institution type, but really across the board in U.S. higher education, people are unsure. Um, I, I think we're at a stage where uh, institutional members are saying, okay, who, who makes that first step? Um, but regardless of who makes the first step, there are students with long COVID, there are students needing accommodations related to their long COVID, and we do not want to have this student group fail because we are not providing the appropriate resources and support that, th- that could help them succeed as they are de- dealing with this emerging condition.
0: Right. I mean, it just, it it almost seems like it's so new and sort of almost um, so different from anything people have dealt with that um, there's like that deer in the headlights response initially. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just, we we don't want to take a misstep, but taking
1: no steps at all will also create further complication.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Glennis, did you have comments on that as well?
2: Yes, yes, I yes I do, and I think as um, Catherine was saying, a lot of the focus was basically from from their survey on the students and what you know what the students were reporting and how the staffing. But I think one of the things that we miss is basically the impact on the staff themselves. And at MSI, you find what we're finding out that staffing was an issue, and you know so. In the midst of the pandemic, twenty uh, twenty one and twenty two, you're 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 still in there. You're looking at what were the staff feeling? You they're dealing with an emerging population here. There's as as as, as, as um, Catherine said, not enough information. It is still it is still really unfolding all the symptomology. So you're dealing with staffing issues you're dealing with in the midst of it they're also looking at what are their normal functions some of them they're 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 actually functioning and in other ways other than what they're required to do as a DSS staff. The increase in students' requests, and of course, even with the students' requests coming in for for long COVID or mental health issues, it is basically documentation issues that they have to do. How do I parse out documentation? How do I make sure that, what am I looking for? What are we looking for? Who are we collaborating to make sure that we have this information? And that's one of the reasons, and one of our questions we ask if they're collaborating, with their counseling center, because the counseling center is going to be seeing an increasing number of students, which then, of course, then translates to students uh, requ- requesting accommodation. Um, for them on the ground, being able at the initial part part of the, the pandemic, how to navigate an online, you know, how do they navigate online, you know, accommodations and services? How do they address students in different geographical locations? So all of those things were on the staff. And I think nobody was really asking the staff how they were doing and how they, they uh traversing this new terrain that they're they're in. So that was what our focus was on them as they deal with this emerging population right now. Um, Were they feeling represented at the table when decisions were being made? And most of them said no, they did not feel that they they were able to provide input uh, when decisions are being made. So uh, it's building on that, is making sure that we are looking at the staff also who are starting out with maybe one staff member or two staff member dealing with this emerging population. Of, with all of the issues that is that it that is actually bringing to the table, documentation understanding, um, accommodation understanding, working with the faculty, and increasing collaboration with with faculty, working with counseling, working with all of the dis- different departments that they need to work with in order to provide them with the help that with the, just even the understanding as to what is coming down the pipe.
0: Thank you, thank you. Those are so uh, such important. Um kinds of things for us to think about. So um you both kind of touched a little a tiny bit about this, but I'd love to know a little bit more about what resources are currently available to assist um, you know, higher education offices that serve students with disabilities related to long COVID or COVID-related mental health challenges. So what kinds of things are out there? And is there anything kind of innovative or that we, you know, might not be thinking about?
1: Absolutely. So it's always important to see if there is anything being discussed at your institution, right? It's it's good to get a pulse in, within your institution first. But there are organizations that are that are leading these conversations. So as I previously mentioned, Jane Jaro is leading that Long COVID Task Force, and this task force produced a, an incredibly helpful workbook to guide disability resource professionals on how to best support students with Long COVID. Additionally, when thinking about Long COVID-related um, or just COVID-related mental health challenges, challenges, challenges for students, I I would definitely recommend AHEAD, so the Association on Higher Education and Disability, and also the American College Health Association. Those are are really two wonderful organizations organizations with key members having these important conversations and making sure that there are documents and resources and webinars to, to best guide individuals that are supporting these student groups. Um, and I would say that this is something, because it is changing, there is an ebb and flow to this pandemic and how we are supporting students along the way, to remain engaged in, in these communities, to remain engaged with these organizations, because you will constantly hear new stories, new resources, and new opportunities to even participate in policy changes so I, I think if we understand the best organizations and then keep up with either signing up for a listserv or checking back on these websites will really have will allow you to have a better understanding of what's going on not only today but tomorrow and months from now
0: thank you um glennis what about you
2: Okay, so I just want to piggyback on what Catherine said, the Long COVID Task Force, they're doing a lot of work and trying to, you know, collect as much information so that we have the resources available for the staff on the ground. The Long COVID Workbook, of course, um, information from the HEAD website is very, very valuable to practitioners. The National Alliance on Mental Health Issues, which is uh, illnesses, which is basically NAMI, they do a lot. They have resources for that. The National Center for College Standards for College Standards with Disability, they have some more. The World Health Organization, because I'm going to actually pull not only the, uh, the resources here, but some of the resources that I was able to get from those individuals. Individuals in the Caribbean and, and, and South America, the World Health Organization, the Pan American Health Organization, and the Caribbean Alliance of National Psychological Association, and they did a wonderful piece on mental on actually looking at psychological and mental health um, support um, through in, in the midst of this. So I just want to make sure that those resources and um, it is good. It is. It needs to be growing and we need to reach out to more individuals. and as we get it to maybe have a repository so that individuals can can actually have access to these resources um, quickly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, sometimes it's frustrating when people don't even know what's out there that could be helping them. So that's it's a really, really good point. Um, So. One of the surveys I'm pretty sure was conducted nationally and internationally, as you you mentioned earlier. What similarities or differences did you notice in the responses from the staff?
1: Very quickly, Glennis, you probably can uh, speak in a bit more detail to this, but I will say that yes, there were probably similarities both in the international and uh, national uh, survey and interview participants. But I will say that there's such diversity within the United States as well that when I think about this question, I think about that it might not be a location, but perhaps the access to resources. Um, As you know, higher education, there is an incredible range of institutional resource available to administrators, which trickle down to students. And I think for institutions perhaps that might not have been uh, with administrative offices, particular disability resource offices that were incredibly well-staffed or with full-time staffing, this probably complicated the experience of supporting students needing accommodations with um, COVID and long COVID-related conditions. Um, But Glenis, I will defer to you because I, I bet you have some wonderful Findings with the comparison nationally and internationally.
2: Um, some of the similarities with basically the staffing issues that was a, that was an issue. Um, training, uh, the requirement for training was an issue, and that it seems to be across the board. Um, and but then then with the with the Caribbean, one of the things that that that, that was interesting for me is that most of the they you do not have a full DSS office per se, so you're looking at uh, one of the institution. the DSS support came from the counseling um, department, but they are now embarking on the development of a disability support services office, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, so they were working on providing the services um, for the students, providing counseling. And one of the things, and I, I'll talk to, to I'll, I'll address some of this uh, later. One of the things that I found that they look at a holistic approach in working with the students because they were looking at the students who, because who were going home, and because of of uh, issues maybe at home, working with with collaborating with the students and the parents and providing counseling for the family as opposed to um, just the individual, which I, which I thought was very, very unique to to what um, our U.S. institutions may do, because I don't know of any institution that that, that is currently doing that. Uh, and also um, making sure that it was more of a community base, um, a community base in terms of how they approach the services that they provide, but try to, Technology was an issue, technology access for students and staff was an issue, and dealing with students over here and there with different kinds of insecurities like housing and food insecurities was something that they they actually... it was very very similar because here I would uh, most of the the students that that were dealing with housing issues you did not find out until we were on lockdown and the students could not um, reside on on campus so you you're seeing you were seeing an emerging group of students with housing and food insecurities and you saw you saw the same thing in um, one of the one of the colleges reports that from from the from the Caribbean so the similarities, lots of similarities, but the and the differences is basically how they approach some of the things that we were doing. They were already doing, de- they were dealing with the students with mental health issues and dealing with it from a community-based approach.
0: Thank you. Thank you for all of that. And um, I guess one of the things that I think that our listeners are going to be thinking about is, um, you know, um, so where are we now and what happens if there's another large wave or flare-up of COVID-19? You know, like just yesterday I was reading about this new variant of COVID that is particularly pervasive. And um, I just am wondering, like, um, what, where are we now and what, what, what do you think is going to happen and how can your research help us to be prepared for that?
1: Yeah, so what do we know? We know that we're going to keep on seeing... Uh, COVID and long COVID cases with students in higher education. And the 1920, 2021, and the 21, 22 academic years really provided some excellent examples and opportunities to see what worked and what did not work, um, whether that was with the transition to and from hybrid and remote learning and student support models. Um, and, it, and unfortunately, the, the first few waves, these they acted essentially as a case study in higher education and And there are really things that we have to recognize from this um, time period if we want to make it a more, successful, supportive, and inclusive higher education environment in the future. I think the biggest thing we need to understand and truly commit to is that we need to continue functional practices for the future. Anecdotally, I heard from so many administrators trying to do this go-back-to-normal policy sw- switch, but, but, but if these new policies and practices are working, why why not? Why not keep it, right? So faculty members who were required and, and maybe not maybe unknowingly were uh, engaging in some UDL, so universal design for learning practices, they suddenly stopped because maybe they were no longer required to record lectures or provide additional formats for for assignment submissions. but, but taking that switch back, that that was really to the dismay of many individuals with and maybe without formal accommodations that were truly benefiting, right? Because what do we know? Not everyone with a formal accommodation plan. There, there are still many students who do not formally uh, use accommodations, but still might very much need um, accommodations or other inclusive practices. Um, so... So, so why go back when we have learned so much and we have the time to reflect and say, well, maybe this wasn't as big of a lift as we initially thought it would be? Um, we we really need to ensure that moving forward we are realistic, but we are that we are inclusive and that we are flexible, so that when another wave happens, if it does, um, and even if it doesn't, but that we are moving forward to a higher education environment that is more supportive and and more. Um, available to st- all student needs um, and 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 we want to make sure that we are really engaging
2: and
0: committing to this idea thank you thank you glennis did you want um to share anything
2: yes um where are we now i think from my from our end of the study which um uh, which basically focus on and the staffing i think it's just really taking this information and looking at how the DRC or Disability Support Services Office are viewed on college campuses and the staffing. One of the things that actually struck me as we were interviewing was uh, one of the respondents said, you know, I had COVID, but because there was limited uh, staffing, I had to first think of how do I address this? Nobody was thinking of our mental health. Nobody was thinking of our of, you know, medical condition. No one was thinking about that. The focus was always on, you know, and, 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 you know, how is the faculty faring and what have you. So if, where are we now? I think if we can actually start shedding and, and shining a light on this critical department that supports, you know, between 10 to 12% of some, of some institution population, that we need to be paying attention to to that, we need to understand that this is emerging an, an emerging issue, and it's not going anywhere. As Catherine says, we cannot go back to business as, as normal. We cannot go back to one staff, one one staff in a, in a in, in what should be a department, trying to, to do all of this stuff. So my so that is part of of what my I would like for for, for to happen. Dealing with mental health issues, are we collaborating? with other the with, with other areas and you're hearing from what we what I was hearing also is that we need to collaborate more. If you look at the medical model the from the medical end not the medical model but the medical end you see an international very robust collaboration effort and we need to take that in education in in, in our education higher education so that we are collaborating not only within our own geographic location, but nationally and internationally, so that we are actually sharing and, and sharing resources that we may have, that we have. So that is one of the things that we were asked to do is can we develop uh, more resources and can we share that? And that is one of the things that I think um, that we can actually pull together and have that available at the, the, both the national and international level. Where are we now? Mm. take all that we have learned and move forward, not go back.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I want to say, um, you know, thank you to um, both of you, Glennis and Catherine, um, for, you know, the time that you spent with all of this research, you know, your wisdom, your passion, uh, your voice um, uh, out there. I think this is so important. And again, I think like in higher education, it's been overlooked. And so um, I guess I'd just like to end by saying, is there anything else that you'd like to um, share with our audience today and just uh, leave? with them any any last kind of comments that you might want to make
1: Uh, very quickly i would just like to to share that we are actively in this conversation and that this one data collection is the first of many and i think that if we remain curious and we remain engaged and that we share out this important work um, that the conversation can not only continue but can grow. And I hope that for our next uh, data collection, that unfortunately, I think that we will have more disability resource professionals sharing that they have students coming in. So I, I think that perhaps it will be a bit of a, a moment to reflect and say, okay, if I'm getting these student cases, I probably will get more and more in time. How can I advocate for them in my circles, professionally, personally, and also with higher education administration? This has to be on the radar of our leaders so that we provide the appropriate resources and budget appropriately uh, to
2: best guide their journey throughout their academic degrees.
0: Great, thank you, Glennis.
2: And for me, it is basically bringing light to a critical area on, on university campuses, your DRC office and the work that they do from, from the top level to fully understand the work that they do and the need for staffing and budgeting in those areas is critical. This is just Go, it's going to grow. We were comp- we were looking at yeah. the increasing before COVID and in counseling and mental health issues, and now this is just going to actually even compound it. And we need to make sure that there, there there's beginning discussions about how do we address the need in this department, and also be mindful of the staffing there.
0: Thank you. Thank you both so much. And again, I just want to say thank you. We are really excited about being able to sponsor this um, podcast and to work with you uh, because you do such good work. So thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you.
1: Thank you for this opportunity. Thank
0: you so much. You're welcome.